chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you're using the Bible that we provided for you, it's on page 863. So if you're using the Bible we provide, it's on 863. And as you, as you make your way to Luke chapter 7, I want to tell you that God has been unbelievably kind to us as we've been in these early stages of starting Redemption Hill Church. I want you to think about this. Just about eight months ago, we started as a leadership team of seven people uh, meeting in a tiny little community group at the Miller's Home in the Hillside area of Medford. In September, we saw that group multiply. The Chastity started one in their home in West Medford. And then uh, just this past month, we started another one in our, at our apartment in, in the Wellington area of Medford. And so it has been awesome to see how God is, is, is at work. He's answering prayer after prayer. We're seeing him open up huge doors to, for us to love and serve our city. He's obviously provided a place for us to meet on Sundays, which is just a, a huge. In fact, just kind of keep this on the DL, but just two years ago they told a church, they said, we will never rent to a church on Sundays. And so it's obvious how God is at work. And most importantly, he's less the people like you. We've been able to connect with, with people like you and many more uh, who, are, who are regularly coming to our community members. And so, as great as all this has been, and as jacked up as I am about the possibilities of God doing something great here in Medford and in greater Boston, I really have two great fears as we start this church. Number one, I fear that we will operate out of our own resources our own sufficiency. If we do that, that's going to lead to ineffectiveness and to burnout and, and perhaps even self-glorification. And number two, another fear that I have is that we would barely make a dent in the great need for the gospel to penetrate this city in greater Boston. It is my fear that, that, that 30, 40 years from now, we would look back. By the way, that's how long we plan on being here, basically, as, as long as God gives us life. I don't know if that's how long you plan to be in Medford, this area. It'd be really cool, so stay as long as you can, please. <laughs> Even if you're a college student, go to grad school, stay for a long time. But, but, but I, I fear that we would look back 30, 40 years from now, and we would say, man, we could have done so much more. And so the, the question becomes, as we stand on the precipice of starting this church, moving toward weekly services, the question we should ask ourselves is, what can inoculate us from falling into these two great traps? What can keep us from relying on ourselves rather than casting ourselves on the mercy and power of God? And number two, what can enable us to make an unbelievable impact for the gospel right here in this place? I believe the answer is this. Great faith. Great faith causes us at once to operate out of a constant dependence on God rather than ourselves. And great faith will lead us to expect great things from God as we engage in this thing we call starting a new church, church planting. And so our passage this morning is going to, to challenge us to, on the one hand, to have a huge view of Christ. Our view of God is probably, as some theologians have said, the most important thing about us. 
what we believe about God. There's nothing more important than that. So this, this text is going to challenge us to have a huge view of Christ. It is also going to challenge us to have a deeper and a greater faith in Him. And so if you would, follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. This is what the, the Bible says. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When the, he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come, up, come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to, my, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had sent had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What this text gives us this morning is a stunning picture of Jesus Christ and a stunning picture of great faith in him. I think this text teaches us that great faith is cultivated by complete humility and unyielding trust in the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus demands that we place great faith in him. And, and you say, Tanner, uh, I'm not even sure what I believe about Jesus. I mean, how am I even going to have great faith? Well, let me just encourage you. If you're here this morning and you're kind of exploring Christianity, man, we are glad you're here so we can explore what the Bible says about him together. But perhaps most of us in this room have decided Jesus is God. He is Lord. He is the Savior of my life. I want to follow him. If that's the case, man, that, that's awesome. There's nothing better than following Christ. But let me ask you a question about your faith. Of what quality is your faith? Or to say it another way, how great is your faith. How great is your faith? You see, faith is the air we breathe as Christians, right? It's, it's how we get down and do what we do on a daily basis. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that the faith is the assurance of things hoped hope for and the, and the conviction of things not yet seen. The, the biblical writers talk about faith over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says what? We walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please God. I love what Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 says. It says that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul, what are you saying? You're saying the beginning, the end, everything in between, it's all exercise. Our whole life is about faith. We walk by faith. And so if faith is so central to our lives, what does this text teach us about great faith? Well, number one, great faith approaches Christ with complete humility. Great faith approaches Christ with great humility. We find that the main person in this passage, other than Jesus, which, by the way, here's a little hermeneutical lesson for you. That means how we interpret the Bible, fancy way of saying the way that we study the Bible. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. Okay? So, so Jesus is the main character of Luke 7, as he is the main character of every single passage in the Bible. Alright? God is the main character. Jesus is the main character. But other than Jesus, the main person in this passage is this nameless centurion introduced by Luke in verse 2. Now, a centurion was a professional officer in the Roman army who exercised authority over roughly 100 soldiers. And we don't know much about this centurion, but we do know that he, of course, as a Roman, was not of the people of Israel. And this is particularly important to Luke because Luke loves to show how that the gospel is for all people and particularly those who are marginalized by others. And so we see that the centurion is in a desperate situation. Verse 2, look at verse 2. It says that, he tells us that, that he had a servant who was sick. I want you to step into his shoes for just a moment. He has a sick servant, but this wasn't just any servant. This was a servant who was highly valued by him. And because of the context where we learn about the centurion's character, we can assume that, that the centurion is not concerned about monetary gain here. That's not what he's talking about. He was highly valued because he was dear to him, because he had high esteem for the servant. So he has a servant who was sick. It wasn't just any servant, and it wasn't just any sickness. What does verse 2 say? It says, he was at the point of death. Can you feel the intensity of the moment? What, what was he to do? Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jew, at Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So when, so, so when the centurion hears about Jesus, it's almost as if an air of hope surfaces. He thinks, man, here's the solution. I know Jesus has power. I know Jesus has authority. I know Jesus can heal people. He's already done it before. Perhaps he'll do it again. And so he sends these elders of the Jews to Jesus. And when the Jewish leaders got to Jesus, they began lobbying for the centurion. Look at verse 4. It says that, that when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. So they, they try to persuade Jesus. And their appeal centered on the centurion's credentials and character. Look at what they said. They say, he is worthy. Don't miss that. He is worthy. to have you do this for him. Why? For he loves our nation. He is the one who built for us our synagogue. The Jewish, Jewish leaders are saying, come on, Jesus. He is a good guy. Help him out. If anyone deserves this, it's, it's him. And with these words, Jesus goes to him. Now, it's important to realize that most Jews would have never made that move. They never would have gone to the centurion. Why? Because the Jews were an ethnocentric people. 
What that means is they were, they were centered on themselves. If you do not share their heritage, they look down upon you in most cases. But this is why I love the Gospel of Luke. You can't look at the Gospel of Luke and not conclude that the Gospel is for all people. He's constantly highlighting Jesus' compassion to go to, to, to all. Jesus, as Luke says, was a friend of sinners. And so, surely even the most skeptical atheist cannot look at Luke 7 and, and conclude that this is a, an undesirable quality in Christ. There was no discrimination in his life. And I want to tell you, as we, as we begin this church, Redemption Hill Church, we like to say that we desire that Redemption Hill would be a thumbprint of our community. And if that's the case, five months from now, five years from now, 50 years from now, we will have black and white and everything in between, rich and poor and everything in between, Chinese and Haitians, Tufts, kids who are in college, and the old lady down the street who just dies to see the Red Sox every single day. Our whole community will be represented, worshiping God here at Redemption. That's our desire. So what happens next? Look in verse 6. It says, Jesus went with them. But now, look, there's another set of messengers sent to him. This time, it says that they are friends. And he sends another message. Check this out. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Do you see his humility there? Did you know how his message contradicts the message of the, the elders of the Jews? What did they say? They said, he is worthy to have you do this for him. What does the centurion say? He says, I am not worthy. There's no presumption in his request. There's no sense of entitlement here. The centurion displays a proper view of himself. When he looked at himself in the mirror, he didn't see anything worthy about himself whereby Jesus should grant his request. And we would do well to take this perspective ourselves, right? There's nothing worthy in us that gives us room for demanding anything of God. And this is so important for us to grasp because this is where faith begins. A humble heart provides the soil where great faith is cultivated. A humble heart provides the soil where great faith is cultivated. And so let me ask you this morning, how do you approach God when you make a request? Does God exist to serve you? To fulfill your plans for your life? To make much of you? Or do you exist to serve Him? To submit to His plans for your life? To make much of Him? You see, the pompous and the proud will never bend the ear of the only This is what James 4, 6 is talking about when it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So the centurion gets it right. He says, Lord, I am not worthy. He, he demonstrates his faith in the posture that he takes before Jesus. So we learn first that great faith approaches Christ with complete humility. But our text also teaches us that great faith places unyielding trust 
in the absolute authority of Christ. Great faith places unyielding trust in the absolute authority of Christ. You see here, the key issue is stunning faith. But what's so great about this faith? What's the quality of this faith? It's faith in the authority of Christ. So we should probably understand what authority means. What are we talking about when we say authority? Well, J.I. Packer, a great theologian who was nearing the end of his life, says this, authority, authority is a relational word which signifies the right to rule. When we talk about the absolute authority of Christ, we mean that his word and his will carry decisive force. So when we look at the rest of the centurion's message to Jesus in verses 8 and 9, we discover his remarkable faith. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, actually, back up to, to, to verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy of having you come into my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. There are two things that make this statement so remarkable. Number one, he believed that Jesus was not bound by spatial or ge geographic limitations. In other words, Jesus, you don't have to be there, you don't have to be present. I know that you can exercise your authority on the spot, no matter where you are. And this is good news for us, right? Because Jesus now reigns in heaven, and he exercises his authority by his spirit. And so for us, we can know that Jesus is still exercising his authority today. But, but then number two, look at this, look at this faith that he exercises. He says, oh, Lord, just, just say the word. Just speak the word. You don't have to show up. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to do anything. Just say the word. So why? Why was this centurion so confident in Christ? It's because he understood fully. Look at verse 8. He says, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes. And I say to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. With these words, the centurion cast himself completely on the divine authority of Christ. Do you see his appeal there? He's arguing from the, from the lesser to the greater. He, he says in effect, look, I know what it is to be under authority, and I know what it is to be in authority. If I say to one of my servants, go, and they go. If I say to one, come here, they're going to come. If I say to one of my servants, do this, they're going to do it. He understands authority. And cast himself on the, the divine authority of Christ. To say that we believe in the complete authority of Jesus Christ is to say that we believe that he's a sovereign king. It's, 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 it's to, to believe that he caused the shots. He needs no help. He is the sovereign Lord. And the Bible speaks a lot about the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Jesus Christ, this is what we find in the Bible. Jesus Christ has all authority over unclean spirits and demonic forces. He's a, he has all authority over all sickness. He has authority to give someone else authority. This teaches us that any authority that we enjoy in life is a delegated authority. His word and his teaching have authority. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has authority over every human being. 
He has authority over life and death. I love John 10, verse 18. Jesus says, look, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. And so from, from our birth to our death, Jesus keeps our hearts pulsating with life. He has the authority over our lives. And to put this even greater perspective, the authority of Christ upholds the universe, as Hebrews 1 teaches us. This is the Christ that we know and follow and serve and love and worship. The absolute authority of Christ. And so how powerful is your Christ? Are you believing God anything in your life right now? Do you believe God can do great things in your midst? We sing songs like, God, you are mighty to save. And then perhaps through our week, our lives and our, the way that we engage other people doesn't really match up to the, to the songs that we sing, to the words that we say. I think that we maybe don't attempt much for Jesus because at the end of the day, we don't think he's all that powerful. We don't believe that he's all that mighty. So we should ask ourselves, is our, is our God too small? Is our God too impotent? Or do we need him as great, with complete authority? I'd like to submit to you this morning that the quality of our faith will be proportionately related to how clearly we see the greatness of God. Psalm 70, verse 4 says this, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And may those who love your salvation continually say, God is great. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. See, we can plumb the depths of a lot of things in this life, but we'll never plumb the depths of the greatness of God. A.W. Tozer says this. This is pretty in our face, all right? Embrace yourself. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Are there any idolaters in the room today? If we fail to believe in the absolute authority of Christ, and if we fail to allow that to impact the way that we work, the way that we parent, the way that we interact with others, the way that we witness, I think Tozer has it right. To one degree or another, practicing our culture. And so... Let me ask you a couple of questions. These are questions that I desperately need to ask myself. What have you prayed for that goes well beyond your expectation of how God typically works? If someone were to take an inventory of your prayer life over the past month, what conclusions would they draw about God? And what conclusions would they draw about the power of God? You see, our prayer life reveals how much authority we believe Christ truly possesses. We pray according to our faith. If we see Christ as the infinite fountain of life, as someone who is unlimited in his ability to distribute grace and power to his people, 
then we'll ask much of him. If not, I think that we'll look back and say, oh, God, we could have done so much more for you. I love what Octavius Winslow says about this. He says this. Winslow was a, a, a pastor in the 19th century. Sometimes I call him Shaktavia. Sometimes I call him Ocho Winslow. Some, sometimes I call him Tete. You say, why is this? That's, I, I, wrote my, I wrote my dissertation on him, so we kind of have a close relationship. Even though I've never, of course, met him. <laughs> but listen to what Winslow says. This is so good. Let this soak in. Speaking of, of God, speaking of Christ, he is the fountain of love as well as of life. How much do we need this truth? What stinted views, unjust conceptions, and wrong interpretations have we cherished of him simply because we overlook his character as the fountain of living waters? We limit the Holy One of Israel. We judge him by our poor, narrow conception of things. We think that he is like us. We forget in our approaches that we are coming to an infinite fountain. That the heavier the demand we make upon God, the more we shall receive. And that the more often we come, the more we are welcome. That we cannot ask too much. That our sin and his dishonor are that we ask so much. When we forget that he is glorified in giving and that the more grace he distributes to his people, the richer the revenue of praise he receives in return. Oh, how I hope the weight of this falls in our hearts this morning. If you're like me, if you approach God as if he's a lot like us, as if he's limited by our resources, if we want to see God do something with sin, if we want to see God do something with truth, you probably start praying, Lord, I believe, help me. God, forgive us for our small requests, our narrow views, our, our unjust conceptions of who you are. Starting today, I want to know who's going to start praying that the gospel explodes in the city? Who today is going to take on the attitude of William Carey who said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. By the way, if you've been around Redemption Hill very long, or you stick around, which we hope you will, this is one of our mantras here. We want to expect great things from God, and we want to attempt great things for God. Here in the great and So I suppose that for some of us here this morning, and this is certainly true, probably for being honest from time to time in our Christian lives, that at times... Our Christian walk loses its luster. It loses its attraction. And I would pose to us this morning that the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. We fail to ask, we fail to expect God to show up and do great things in Greater faith will save us from a boring and unproductive Christian life. Listen, I don't believe we'll get to heaven one day and hear Jesus say these words, you asked too much of me. You thought that I was bigger than I really am. 
You should have not prayed so much or expected so much from me. No, we'll never, we're never going to hear those words. Jesus is infinite in his resources. He desires to, to throw out so much grace to us as we live with him and engage in his mission. So let's, let's pause for just a moment. And let's ask ourselves the question, where else in Scripture is the authority of Christ so prominent? Where else in Scripture is the authority of Christ so prominent? Answer, the Great Commission. What does is, what is Jesus say just before he ascends to heaven and he leaves his mission in the hands of his disciples by the power of the Spirit? What does he say? Most of the time when we think about the Great Commission, we think what? Go and make disciples. But how is the Great Commission? What is, what is the foundation of the Great Commission? Where does the Great Commission start? It starts in verse 18, right? What does Jesus say in verse 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so listen to this. The foundation of the mission of Christ is the authority of Christ. I hope you'll leave with these words ringing in your hearts and your minds. The authority of Christ is big enough for the mission of Christ. The authority of Jesus Christ is big enough for the mission of Christ. And so as you pray for your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your roommates, your classmates, all those around you, you are backed up by the authority of Christ. As you step out in faith and you invite your friends to come to Redemption Hill with you, as you step out in faith and, and engage in the spiritual conversation, as you step out in faith and, and share the truth about Jesus and seek to live that out in your life, all of that is backed up and should be founded on the authority of Christ. About two years ago, I had a conversation with a church planner here in Boston. He's been here for about nine years now. And he said this, he, after he reminded me that Boston has been nicknamed the Church Planter's Graveyard, <laughs> which I found incredibly encouraging, by the way. He said, he said this, look, Tanner, everyone wants to talk about how difficult it is to start a ch church in Boston. Everyone wants to talk about how tough it is. But you know what? We've chosen to focus on this. Not how difficult it is, but how big Jesus is. That's the kind of theology I want to carry in my heart. Not how tough it is, not how, how long it's going to take before our friends who maybe we've kind of shared Christ with over and over and over and over and over and over again come to faith. But let's focus on how big Jesus is. As we start this church, we know that we bring nothing to the table. But Jesus brings everything to the table. So I think it's safe to say that until we get this right, the authority of Christ for the mission of Christ, our missional efforts, whether it's here in Boston, whether it's across the globe in India, as Amy goes out to pray for her this morning, unless we are expecting much from God, exercising a lot of faith in the authority of Christ, we're not going to see God do what we desperately desire Him to do. And so what happens when we exercise this kind of faith? Look at verse 9. It says this. When Jesus heard these things, 
he marveled. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such thing. This verse should stop us in our tracks. Jesus, the divine Son of God, marvels at a man's faith. He was amazed. He was, he was astonished. Jesus loves this kind of faith. The fact that Luke tells us that, that Jesus turned to the crowd only heightens the effect of what he's about to say. What does he say? He says, I tell you, I haven't even seen this kind of faith even in Israel. In other words, the people who should have known, should have been expecting the Messiah, should have been exercising great faith in God, lacked that kind of faith. But this Roman centurion said, Jesus, I believe. I know you have the authority to make it happen. This should be a warning for us. But those who should have the most faith often lie. How sad it would be to hear Jesus say one day, you know, my, my people at Redemption Hill, they did a lot of great things. They loved me. They loved my work. They loved their community. They did a, a lot of positive things in my name, but man, I so much more if only they would have exercised greater faith. You see, the end of this passage shows us that not only did this great faith move Jesus inwardly, but it also moved him out. Verse 10 says that when he heard, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus was moved to action by the faith, the great faith of the centurion. And so perhaps Jesus is marveling at our faith this morning. But you know, there's two possibilities of Jesus marveling at our faith. There's only one other place in the New Testament where it speaks of Jesus marveling at anyone or anything. And it's in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and in verse 6 of chapter 6 it says this, He marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. People in his hometown were skeptical of Jesus. They didn't believe that, that, that he was who he said he was, that, that he could do the things that this centurion believed that he could do. So it's my prayer this morning that we would be people who realize we're in desperate need of appropriating greater faith in Jesus Christ. The awesome thing about the mission of God is that God has this mission, but he invites us to be a part of it. He works through people. And so if we're going to see the mission of Christ accomplished in Bethlehem, accomplished in these surrounding communities, we need to yield ourselves, humble ourselves to Jesus and our approach to him. And we need to live with a confident expectation in his power to work. So as we conclude our time here this morning, here's just a, a bit of encouragement for you. Here for me. How can we begin to appropriate this kind of thing? What are some ways that we can get on board with it? 
with the mission of Christ, knowing that it's his authority that, that provides the foundation, drives his mission. What can we do? Well, here, here are three suggestions. Really, really simple, really clear. Number one, pray. Pray. Here are two things to pray for. Number one, ask God to fill you with great faith. This is not something that comes natural for us. It happens as we spend time with Jesus. As we ask God to give us faith. So, so number one, ask God to fill you with great faith. And number two, just begin praying for your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your roommates, your family who need Jesus or need a help first thing that we can do is we can pray. Number two, meditate. Meditate on texts like Psalm 111 verse 2 that we read at the beginning of the service. It says, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. Meditate on, on texts like the Great Commission that says, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We go in his authority, we go with his presence as we engage in his mission. And then finally, not only pray, not only meditate, but, but finally go. Go. And as you go, there's so many different ways to go. There's so many different ways that we can engage in the mission of God. But, but here's just one simple way. You place some invite cards in your seat. And if you want more than three, you can take three. Take as many as you want. All right? And these, these invite cards are just very simply going to point people to our website. We're going to ask them a, a pointed question about if they're truly satisfied in life. And then they serve as an, an invite to our grand opening service and, and our service on Palm Sunday and our service on Easter Sunday. And so let's start with prayer. And let's get busy for Jesus because we love him, because we want to see people reach with the gospel here in the city. You see, we're rookies at this. John, Josh, and I, we're new at this. And so, we were planning to have our services on April 10th, right here in this room. Which is a great room. We can, we can pack in probably 80, 90 people comfortably. And let's be honest, okay, let's be honest. Number one, um, this, is a, this is a great Sunday to preach on faith because I was really expecting more of like 14 regular teams to be here this morning. There were about 30, probably 30 that come. Consistently through the week. Um, so I expect a few more people here than this, but it's just a good exercise to practice faith. It's great to see a few good faces here today. Um, but but, but here, here's what we were thinking man, if God sends, check this out, if God sends 60, 70, 80 people to Redemption Hall on April 10th, on Sunday, Easter Sunday, I mean, that is unbelievable for starting a church in the greater Boston. I mean, it's probably not that we're in the numbers that we're in. The, we want to we want to see people come because we desperately desire that people know Jesus and follow Jesus and worship Jesus. But our plan was to have all of our services in April right here in this room, and then we were challenged by a good friend to say, "What? You guys don't think there's a possibility that we're even doing that? What happens if if 100 people show? What what happens if 120, 150 people show up? What's going to happen then?" So, thankfully, one of the beautiful things about Springstep is just above us here, there's a room called Hawkins Hall. And Hawkins Hall won't hold, you know, 90 to 100 comfortably. Hawkins Hall will hold up to 245 people. And so we're going to step out on faith, and we're going to run out 
the whole building for the month of April. We're going to see what God does. Look, if, if 30 people show up on April 10th, man, we'll rejoice. It's not going to stop the mission. We'll be content in whatever God does. But we don't want to get to April 10th and say, man, we didn't ask God to do something unbelievable, something that would surpass even really pretty good expectations. So think about this. The roughly 30-ish core team regular attenders to Redemption Hill as well as a number of others who have just come the past couple Sundays. Yeah, what happens if we all bring just two people, just two people on April 10th? We're already pushing 90 people. What happens if those 5,000 invite cards we passed up this week and the 10,000 more that are coming in this week as we get those out with different serve teams and as we ourselves dish them out to our friends that we're praying for, what if, what if, what if another 20 or 30 come there? We're already up to 120 people. I mean, we're out of this room. <coughs> so... The challenge and the encouragement is this. Let's expect great things from God as we start this church here in this place. Knowing that God loves these people of this city much more than we have. That he desires for his name to be glorified here in the nations. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of, of worshiping you, singing these great songs of praise with with other brothers and sisters, perhaps those that are exploring what it means to, to, to know Christ, to follow, to follow you. And Lord, I pray that we would have a huge view of who you are and that we would exercise great faith in your awesome name. Lord, we know that you are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or can imagine. And so Lord, would you do it? We ask that you would, that you would blow us away that you would move us to tears to see people flocking from all over the city, all, all over this area, that they might discover what it means to follow you, why you matter for our lives today. And so, Father, start with each of us here. Work in our hearts, move in our hearts, increase our faith, set us out on mission for you, we pray.